turn to the book of Nahum. <clears throat> the book of Nahum. And count yourself blessed if you're sitting next to someone that knows where that book is, alright? <clears throat> Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, then comes Nahum. Or you might find it easier to go to Matthew and start going back toward the front. You're beginning to see why these are called the minor prophets. Because they are shorter books and oftentimes they're overlooked books much to our shame. But I am grateful that God has led us to this study of the minor prophets and... Um, I trust you are benefiting as you go through the studies during the week. The book of Nahum and the book of Jonah really are sequels. Jonah came to Nineveh and preached the judgment of God was coming. They repented and God had mercy. A great revival was brought. But about a hundred years later, God sent Nahum to the same Ninevites. And he came with the message that they had already gone back into their sin. And in their sin, God sent Nahum with the message of God's judgment. Last week we looked at what we can learn about God from the book of Jonah, and today we want to look at who is God from what we learn just even from the first chapter of the book of Nahum. The character and nature of God is of utmost importance for us to know and for us to realize. In Deuteronomy 6, he said, beware lest you forget God. It's easy for us to forget what God is like. It's easy for us to create a God of our own image. Um, John MacArthur said about God, the atheists say that God is a nobody, that he doesn't exist, he has nothing to do with anything going on. The deist comes along and says, oh, there's a cosmic force, but... He could care less about us. There, there may be a God and He maybe got this started, but we're all on our own now. The fatalist says God is a practical joker who played the biggest joke on us. A life existence without meaning. And honestly, that's how many people look at life. Then there is the type that view God as a grandfather type, uh, kind of a heavenly Santa, if you please, naive, senile, indulgent, no convictions, goes around, pats everybody on the head and says, it'll be all right. And that's how some people view what God is. Then the pantheist, the pantheist comes along and says, no, 
God is in everything. God is in the flowers. God is in the animals. God is in the dirt. God is in the clouds. God is in this podium. God is in everything, which is saying, in essence, that God is nothing. And some people believe that God is the universal party pooper, a kind of cosmic killjoy who reigns on everybody's parade, all right? And you've probably had some times in your life where you've thought maybe those thoughts toward God when things weren't going well. It really doesn't matter what we think about God. It matters what God tells us about himself. And in the book of Nahum, he really reveals much about himself. And we want to look at ten characteristics that God tells us about himself in just this first chapter and really in the first few verses. So, verse 1, the burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Echoshite. God is jealous and God avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversary. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. We'll just stop there and come back and listen. Number one, he tells us that God is jealous. Now, we we think of jealousy often in a negative sense, But in in the positive sense, God has the right to be jealous because he owns everything. And he is jealous for his glory. That's why the first command, you shall have no other God before you. That he is the one that is deserving of all praise and all honor and all glory and glory given to anything or anyone else is misplaced glory. So he is jealous for his glory, but he is jealous for his love. He loves mankind. He sent his son to redeem us. And it is the love of of his heart that reaches out to us. And love is what makes a person jealous in a good sense. A husband and wife should be uh, such to protect their relationship that they would be jealous of anything that would hinder that relationship. 
So he is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his love. He is jealous for his son. It's important for us to realize the emphasis and the importance that is placed on Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and in verse 6 he says, I marvel that you're turned away from the grace of Christ to a different gospel, verse 7 of Galatians 1, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of, even, uh, the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That is strong language. And what he's saying here is, I have given my son Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And if anyone comes and preaches any other way of salvation than Jesus Christ, you don't say, oh, that's an interesting opinion. You don't say, well, there's more than one road that leads to heaven. He doesn't say any of that. He says, if anyone preaches any other gospel then Jesus Christ alone, let them be accursed. That is strong language because God is jealous for His Son and not only jealous for His Son, He knows that is the only way of forgiveness. He knows that is truth. So He comes very strongly in this regard. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22, he also says that if, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema, meaning let him be condemned. So, in understanding, God is a very jealous God. Some of you have worked a job, you've done a project, and someone else has come along and received credit for it. And you're like, I'm, I'm the one that had the idea. I'm the one that did this. And, and this guy's getting the credit for it? What, what's going on here? Can you imagine how God feels when He created this universe and now we're told that it happened by evolution? Billions and billions of years. And God says, I'm the one that did this. This didn't happen any other way than in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Can you imagine? You've probably experienced being lied about. the injustice of falsehood that someone would speak, and we all have enough bad in our lives that they don't need to lie about us to find bad, all right? But that they, they create, they manufacture a lie 
about us. Think how God feels about all the lies about God. I mean, this is an, a personal affront to God. Well, God wouldn't do that. And God says, wait a minute. And, and the lies about God. Well, God would approve this. And God says, no, 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 no. There, I would not. What about you created something and then you see it, your work destroyed? God created the heaven and the earth. He created mankind. He created the family, marriage, the family. He designed human government. He designed nations. Nations are God's design. And all of those are being destroyed. And he says, no, this isn't how I created things to be. When your design is denied or changed, like God's design has been denied or changed, He is a jealous God. You've probably had instances in your life where you've done something, maybe sacrificially, did something to help someone else, And it was met with the spirit of ungratefulness that almost to the the sense of um, expectation, demanding more. Think how God feels. And He illustrated it. Ten lepers came. They were healed. How many came back to give thanks? And the ungratefulness that is manifested... When, when your love is rejected, when you are mocked, when your family is mocked, every day, over and over, millions of times, billions of times, God is mocked. And God says, I want you to know I am a jealous God, but notice He says, and the Lord avenges. He is an avenger. Romans 12:19 he says be not overcome of evil but overcome evil with good and he said don't take vengeance into your own hands but rather remember this the lord said vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord everyone who sets themselves against god will receive his vengeance It's a guaranteed thing because He is God and we are not. He is an avenger. We, We have to hurry through these. But notice He says, The Lord avenges and He is furious. It is the word that is used here is one of controlled fury of um he is the master of his fury. We, we use the term, he flew off the handle. And Marilyn and I were talking about that the other day. Where'd that term come from? Meaning, we know what it means, that he quickly just blew up. Well, the term came from when you would hew your own axe handles and you'd put it on and you're chopping wood and the, the axe head falls off. 
flew off the handle. I mean, it happened all of a sudden, a burst, boom. God's anger, and we're going to see it in a little bit, He is full of fury, and prophecy bears that out. History bears that out. But it's not like some of us are in our lives, and we've been around people that all of a sudden they get mad and throw the tools and get things and... His is a very controlled fury. But He is a God that is furious. He has been violated over and over and over again. And He is a God of fury. Notice verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and in great power. He is slow to anger and in great power. God has great power, and and we're not going to take the time to look at it, but it says in verses, really, 4 through 6, He has the power over the seas, He can dry up the rivers. Who do you think is drying up the Mississippi? Have you heard the Mississippi's drying up? They can't send barges up and down it like, who's doing that? God's in control of everything. The mountains quake before Him. He sends earthquakes. He has the power. He can bring the Rocky Mountains down to nothing. He has all power. The earth heaves at His presence. Who can stand, verse 6, before His indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of His anger? The rocks are thrown down by Him. What He's telling us, is God has all power to do all things. And we need to understand He has all this power, and He is unlimited in His power and His resources, and nothing can stop Him or His works. Also we're reminded in verse 3, He will not at all acquit the wicked. He punishes the guilty. God is not like an unjust judge who simply simply lets the guilty go out in a false sense of compassion. We're living in a day-to-day that that we're turning criminals loose and, and it is not for the benefit of the criminal or for society. God punishes the wicked. God does not just say to everyone, all is forgiven, everything's okay. He will not acquit the wicked. He has never pardoned an unpunished sin. In all the years, throughout all of history, He has never pardoned an unpunished sin. The only way our sin is pardoned, it was punished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And if the blood of Jesus Christ does not cover our sin, we will bear the iniquity of our sin and we will bear the judgment of our sin. And He does not acquit the wicked. 
He doesn't say, oh, I understand you had it rough. The wicked will bear their own sin. And the only way we find forgiveness of sin is through Jesus Christ. That's why in Hebrews it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's not just God, oh, everything's all right. Yep, okay, I understand. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, these first five are very intense and very serious. And I hope you haven't checked out on me already and said, well, that's not the God I know. Well, just like a coin, there are two sides. And I want you to notice the next five things about God. Verse 3 The Lord is slow to anger. It is of God's mercies that we are not consumed today. And it is a testimony to the long-suffering mercy of God. People said in Peter's time, Yeah, 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 you're talking about the Lord's second coming. We've heard that for years. Where is it if he's coming again? Why hasn't he already come? And Peter said, the reason he hasn't already come is because he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. And today people say, yeah, yeah, we're 2,000 years from Peter, and we hear about the Lord's coming again. Yeah, where is he? Where's the promise of his coming? The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but the day is going to come when He comes again. To give you a picture of the long-suffering mercy of God, how many years was Noah building the ark? 120 years. And why? It wasn't just that it took that long. That was 120 years of messages of impending judgment. Yeah, right. You've been doing this for 60 years, Noah. You've been doing this for 80 years, Noah. Yeah, right. You've been doing this 100 years, Noah. You've been doing this 119 years, Noah. God is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. And it mentioned, if you go down to verse 7, The Lord is good. It means the Lord is merciful. His goodness is manifested. Psalm 33 verse 5 says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Everywhere you look in this world, you can see a testimony of the goodness of God. And... God, by His very nature, is good. It is, and again, we're not going to take great amount of time to go into the details on this. But from the very beginning, Satan has always attacked the nature of God in saying God isn't good. In the Garden of Eden, he attacked the nature of God's goodness and said, yeah, God didn't want you to eat that because He's holding something good back from you. 
And we have to be very, very careful in our minds that we don't buy in, well, God isn't good in this area. God is good. And in understanding, regardless, when the trials come, God is still good. And someday we will fully understand the goodness of God. But until then, we rest in the fact, the truth, that God is good. Those that love Jesus Christ will never be accursed. That's the goodness of God. Notice verse 7. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge to us. Do you understand what that is in this world full of of turmoil and trouble in the spiritual warfare that we're in, in the battles that we face in life, God is a refuge. The psalmist said in Psalm 46 in verse 1, God is a refuge for us, a very present help in time of need. He is the place that we go to find perfect peace. He is the one that we can go and and hide in the shelter of His presence. Corey Ten Boom, who as a follower of Christ suffered in the concentration camps in World War II because they protected the Jewish neighbors and friends, survived the concentration camp but saw many of her family members died This is what she said. I have experienced God's presence in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create. I have tested the promises of the Bible, and believe me, you can count on them. That's a testimony of someone that has gone through and found God is a refuge for us. He is a stronghold for us. This is the nature of God. But I want you to notice verse 13. The word Nahum, his name means comforter. He comes with comfort. And you read this and you would think, what comfort is this talking about the judgment? But the enemies were marching upon Judah and... They'd already destroyed the northern tribes. They were coming to destroy Judah. And now Nahum comes with the message that God is going to bring justice. He's going to bring vengeance. And notice what he says in verse 13. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds asunder. They had been in bondage to those who'd captured them. And God says, I am coming to you now, and I am the liberator. It is only God that can liberate us from the guilt and the burden of sin. And he said, I will break off the yoke from you. This is a picture. God alone breaks the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. He alone can deliver us from the penalty of sin, hell. 
He alone can deliver us from the power of sin, controlling our life, and He alone will someday deliver us from the presence of sin. No more sin in the presence of God. He alone does that. And, and He is the liberator. He is the one that, that sets the captive free. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Of course, we're familiar with John 3. Uh, Nicodemus said, what must I do to be saved? You must be born again. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice verse 36. He who believes in the Son, Jesus Christ, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Notice the difference. And really, the the difference comes down, if I do not believe on the Son, Jesus Christ, I am facing a God that is jealous, that is an avenger, that is furious, that has great power, and that punishes the guilty. But if I believe in Jesus Christ, I know the goodness of God, and I know the liberation set free from the penalty of sin, set free from the power of sin, set free from someday the presence of sin. That's why in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, no condemnation. I am under the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why the songwriter said, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Jesus Christ alone is the liberator. And the nature of God is that He's come to set the captive free. He comes to bring the dead to life. He comes to heal and give us eternal life. He is the liberator. And then you notice back in Nahum again, verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. God knows those who trust in Him. In John chapter 10, He said, I know My sheep. My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. And He also then said in Matthew chapter 7 that in the last times, many will say to Him, Lord, Lord, we did all these wonderful works in Your name. And and even in your name, we cast out devils. And God will profess to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You may have done some works, but you never came to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. 
And because of that, eternity separated from God. See, you may fool your parents, you may fool your husband and wife, you most assuredly can fool me as your pastor, you can fool people, but God knows those who are trusting in Him. And that also means God knows those who aren't trusting in Him, who have refused to humble themselves and call upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and someday it will be shown. Now, you have on one hand, you have the character and nature of God. He is jealous, He is an avenger, He is furious, He is great in power, and He punishes the guilty. And apart from Jesus Christ, that's all you'll experience of God. But in Jesus Christ, I come to see that God is slow to anger. He is good. He is a stronghold and a refuge. He is my liberator, and He knows me. See the difference? And the choice is up to you. How God deals with you is in your hands. Is He your liberator because you've humbled yourself and called upon Jesus Christ? Or is He going to be the one that avenges the wicked and brings vengeance? It all comes down to this one basic thing. What have you done with Jesus Christ? And it's not just, I want to add, it's not just praying a prayer. Are you trusting God, I believe God is at work worldwide to get us, even as believers, to trust God. It's too easy for us to trust our own effort. It's too easy for us to trust other people. It's too easy to trust our own savings, our own abilities. And God's working to remove all of those to get our trust in Him alone. And that's where He wants our trust. What are you looking to? What do you go to for your refuge? What do you go to to find strength? What do you go to to find encouragement? And God is at work in our lives. And and these, I mean, this is what Nahum told us about God. This is This is God. And to think God's just going to wink at sin and wink at evil. That's why, to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of hope for America because we have mocked Him, we have denied Him, we have turned from His design, and unless we repent, the judgment of God is already on us. God is not going to wink at the wickedness in our land. He is not. He is a jealous God and giving the praise and glory for everything else to man and not to God. But the joyful thing is, as a believer, as an individual, I can know the blessing of God as my liberator, setting me free from the bondage of sin. As a stronghold, as the one who manifests His goodness and kindness in my life, And you know what? He knows me. He knows every detail. I am His child. I am a member of His flock. He knows His sheep. 
And He deals accordingly in our lives. It is up to us what we do with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank You for the clarity of this picture of what You're like. Lord, it's so clear we can't legitimately walk away and say, well, I don't believe. That's not my God. Well, that may not be our God, but it is God. And Lord, I thank You that You've given us this picture, and I thank You that You are the liberator, that in Your goodness You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin so that the wrath of God would not be upon us, so that there is no longer any condemnation. We are not under the condemnation of our sin when we are in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray if there is one here today that knows in their heart that they have never trusted Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin, Lord, I pray in the quietness of their heart, that even now they would cry out to You to be merciful and to save them through the blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And Lord, You said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I pray for believers here today that we've allowed our trust to go into other things. Lord, May You be our stronghold. May You be our refuge. May You be our trust. And so, Lord, we plead Your mercies that we would truly be trusting in You and experience the goodness of You. And may we rest in Your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.